Well, dear friends, please look at Luke chapter 10 and verses 17 through 24 this morning. Our passage will be Luke chapter 10 and verses 17 through 24. There's a famous painting that was done by 19th century painter William Holman Hunt, and it is one that I don't approve of. I don't recommend the painting, but it is an extremely famous painting, and it is a painting of Jesus knocking on a door. It's supposed to be taken from the passage in Revelation where um, Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea, and he says, I stand at the door and knock. And many times this is an idea. This artist very much encompassed this picture that many in evangelicalism have of Jesus, of this one who is there just working and striving and pleading and, and doing his very best, doing all that he possibly can in wooing the sinner to himself. There it is, that picture of Jesus knocking on the door, and the artist, in his theological wisdom here, does not put a doorknob on the outside of the door for you to glean from that, that, well, Jesus can't open the door, only you can open the door from the inside, for it's the sinner's heart. And Jesus is knocking, Jesus is pleading, Jesus is seeking to compel you to let Him in to your heart but you are the one that must sovereignly turn the doorknob that is on the inside that Jesus has not the ability to reach, for it is within your heart. The artist's rendering doesn't take into account the theology that we see throughout the book of Romans, the theology that we see throughout much of the Old Testament and how the Lord has dealt with the people of Israel, how the Lord has dealt with kings, as the Scriptures even say, that the king's heart is like a river in the hand of the Lord. Think of the sovereign rule of the Lord and the ways in which He has raised up kings and He has removed kings. It's not even that grand. This is the individual sinner that is there, this individual sinner that just needs to open that door to let Jesus in. Funny In all the sermons that Jesus gave, nowhere did He say, who wants to let me into their heart? Even those that would ask Him how they get to heaven, He never said, well, just come here. Pray after me. Or just let me into your heart. The hardest doesn't take into account that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. It it doesn't matter where the doorknob is. Dead men don't turn doorknobs. Dead men don't grab flotation devices. It doesn't matter if you're drowning. So often that picture is given. This what we would call a provisionist picture, or Arminian idea of how someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And they will communicate this idea. Look, so basically they won't go so far as to say that, you know, you're sinless like Adam and Eve, but you've been affected by sin. They will say, well, you're really sick, you're damaged, you're affected by sin. But Jesus has thrown you this life preserver. And you're there and you're drowning. You just need to grab a hold of that life preserver that you could be saved. I would agree. You need to grab a hold of that life preserver. I would agree you need to turn the doorknob. And God needs to, you need the Spirit of God to open your mind and your heart. You absolutely need to confess Jesus Christ. You need to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. These are all things that I fully agree and confess that you need to do, and you need to do that freely. You need to act on your own. You're not doing that robotically as though you were made. You need to freely act from the desire of your heart, whereby that could be a true and a righteous action. The problem is dead men don't grab life preservers. Dead men don't turn doorknobs. Dead men don't confess Jesus. There was a man one time that was in a a debate on this topic, and he was talking of Lazarus in the tomb. And Lazarus came out of the tomb, and his response was, see, dead men can respond. That was his argument. See, someone who's dead has the ability to believe. Someone who is dead has the ability to confess Christ. But anyone reading 
that passage of Lazarus in the tomb knows full well that Lazarus did walk out of the tomb. Lazarus did freely stand up and walk out of that tomb. Lazarus there participated in a party that was, that was put on because he was alive. But the reason why Lazarus walked out of that tomb was because Jesus had given him life. He walked in obedience to Jesus' command after Christ had given him life, after Christ had made him alive. It's the necessary component that must be understood, and the artist's rendition of that painting in no way takes that into account. There's been others that have gone another direction with this, and there was a man, there was a priest named Molinus that in the Counter-Reformation, in response to the Reformation that had occurred in the 16th and then into the 17th century, there was a man named Molinus, and he came up with another idea to try to hold man's free will and hold on to God's sovereignty. And he came up with a system that I will not try to fully unpack right now. But the idea is that prior to the creation of the world, God thought through, God pondered. Now, if you know theology, if you have a decent understanding of theology proper, an understanding of the doctrine of God, someone begins to say God is thinking, God is pondering, God is calculating, you've already got a problem right there. God is not thinking. God is not pondering. God is not figuring anything out. That's what we do. We're the ones that are trying to deal with pieces of information and in wisdom try to work with the information we have. God knows everything. God's not pondering or thinking through anything. But this theology teaches this idea that God thought through, pondered all of the possible worlds that He could create, all the worlds that He could make, and he determined this was the best possible world that he could make. This was the world whereby the most people would possibly say, be saved is through the creation of this particular world. There's philosophers like William Lane Craig that put forward such an idea. But this is not anywhere close to what we see within the Scriptures. God is not one who's trying to figure things out and make things the best way that they possibly can be. And then when you even see the problems in the world, the Molinist will say, well, that's just the cards that he was dealt. This is the best that he could do with what he had. It's a fascinating philosophy, but one that cannot be found within the Scriptures. That's not the biblical idea that is given. That's not the biblical picture that we have of God and His sovereign rule. We have rejoicing occurring within this passage. We have the 72 that were sent out to go and to evangelize, to go and to prepare the way for Jesus. These were, that were sent ahead, kind of like John the Baptist was sent forward as heralds. These were like sub-heralds that were being sent forward to go and prepare the way to say, be ready, the King is coming. Be making preparations Preparation is necessary. Preparation is necessary for those that would receive Christ, those who would trust in Christ. There's preparation that needs to be done. Very, very important preparation. Gardening and work that needs to be done. Tilling of fields. There are categories and understandings that people need to have. The ways that missionaries have to be careful when they go out and evangelize an area. They just go out and say, who wants to accept Jesus? Who wants to believe in Jesus? And people will say, I will, I will. And they will take Jesus and go and, and set him on a shelf right there next to some other false god. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This preparatory work that was being done here by these evangelists that were going forward and demonstrating the rule of Christ, crushing the head of the serpent. These snake crushers, they were going forward at this time. The Lord was using them to demonstrate God's sovereign rule, bringing forward the prophecy that was given there in Genesis 3.15 that a child of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that's the picture that we have here at this time. And the 72 
are returning back to Christ, and they're, they are rejoicing. They are rejoicing that demons are being ex- exercised. They are rejoicing that people are believing in Christ, that people are being healed. And then we have Christ, who is rejoicing over God's sovereign rule, God's sovereign election. And so we have these two distinct points that I think we very clearly have communicated in this passage. They both emphasize this joy. This joy, it's not just unbridled happiness where you're happy at one point and then you're going down the next and whatever is happening around you is changing however you're feeling at that time. This is something that is grounded in truth. This is a joy that you can have when you are like Paul and you're in prison and you're in a destitute situation. This is a joy that you can have like Christ had with the cross being the joy set before Him. There is a joy that is grounded in that which transcends your current situation. And they they are declaring a joy in Christ's sovereign victory. They are seeing the, the beginning portions of the head of the serpent being crushed even as they bring the Word of God, even as they do this preparatory work, even as they go out and they declare the law and the gospel and let the people know that Christ is coming and they need to make preparation. There is a joy that they have, and it is a good joy to have. It is a blessed joy to have to to look out and to see the work of God as someone is sharing the gospel, as you are working in the the lives of people, and you can see the Spirit of God and the Word of God working in their lives. There is a joy that is there, but it must be rightly placed. It must be rightly grounded, regardless of who you are, regardless of, of what skills that you have, regardless of what gifts the Lord has granted to you. They are only that which He is allowing you to borrow. They are only that which you have so long as He determines you will have them. And the purpose of the herald, the purpose of the one that is declaring something about Christ, the purpose of the ambassador that is going out declaring the truth of God, the purpose is to point, is to point the person to the one they represent. The ambassador is communicating the message of the master, communicating the message of the sovereign and pointing the person to the sovereign. Help you if your goal is to make much of yourself. Help you if your goal is to point others to yourself, for you are pointing people to one who cannot be a Messiah, to one who cannot be a Christ. So there is a joy that is there, a joy in in Christ's sovereign victory that the people of God have in ministry, in working in a church, one with another. And secondly, we see a joy in sovereign discerning grace, a joy in sovereign discerning grace. And this is a passage that is of no small difficulty for many people, for you have Christ here rejoicing in the fact that truths are being hidden from certain people, and they're being hardened in the place where they are that God is allowing the truth not to go forward, that it will not go into their minds and their understandings, that they will not be changed, that they will not repent, so that they will continue to walk headlong in their sin and fall under the wrath of God. So joy in Christ's sovereign victory, and secondly, joy in the sovereign discerning grace. Christ here is recognizing and confessing the election that the Father has for those He will call to Himself. Let's look at that first point there. Joy in Christ, sovereign victory. Let's look at those first few verses, verses 17 through 20 in Luke chapter 10. It says, The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given You authority to tread on serpents, and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Very powerful 
words. There's many phrases even within this passage that you could spend much time on even dealing with. But we have here this, this foreshadowing of, of Satan's defeat or a picture of, of what is happening. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And it's an interesting statement that he has here. And there's, there, there's, there's different ways that it is, is looked at. Some are looking at it as, well, this is something that happened in the past. He's saying, well, back in the eternity past, many before the world came into existence, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Uh, others are saying that, well, the, the rain, as the 70 were going forward and they were ministering at that time, and demons were being exercised, and the Word of God was being preached, and people were hearing the gospel of Christ Jesus, as this was going forward, uh, Satan's reign was being removed at that time. And then others look at this and they say, well, it, it's Satan's ultimate defeat. It's something that is there in the end. People would look at Isaiah 14, 12 through 13, a passage that many times people will look at as a passage that speaks of Satan falling from heaven or being removed from heaven. Look there, Isaiah 14, 12, and 13, how you are fallen from heaven, O, o day star, son of dawn, how are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. And one of the reasons why is Odaystar here is translated sometimes as Lucifer. So certainly if you're reading through this passage, you say, oh, Lucifer. You would say, oh, it's talking about Satan, oh, the bright one, this enlightened one. Um, but this passage in its context is talking about the ruler of Babylon and how he has sought to ascend up to heaven. It's a picture that you have many times in idolatry. One is trying to raise themselves up to heaven through their own efforts, through their own deeds. We saw that with the Tower of Babel, man building this tower that he would go up. You see that with all idolatry. Man either lowering the standard of God and making God lower than he is, that he can feel better about himself, or raising the standard of himself. So you have a bad theology, an understanding of God, or a bad anthropology, an understanding of man. If you're seeing God rightly, you will understand that you are falling short of His glory, and your efforts cannot raise you up. Um, but, you know, it, it's possible he could be talking about something that happened in the past. But this picture that you have there of a foreshadowing of, of Satan falling is something that you have in, in each and every one of these pictures where you see God working and accomplishing His purpose in redemptive history. Um, you saw that with uh, Pharaoh. As, as Moses is going before Pharaoh and Moses is speaking on behalf of the Lord, and, and the Lord is bringing upon Egypt these great plagues, these plagues that very much correspond to uh, deities, false gods in Egypt. They were very much corresponding to these plagues, showing that God's, God was sovereign over these deities that they were worshiping in Egypt. You saw this with Goliath and the ways in which that his, David, David taking down Goliath very much showed the, the fall of Satan. And all of these things, we could walk through many of these pictures that they are pointing to the demise of Satan, the crushing of the serpent's head. And I think that's the most reasonable way of looking at it. It could be him looking forward, yes, of what's going to happen in the future. But I believe we see the, the successes of this missionary work, the, the successes of the work that is being done. And that's something that you as a Christian need to see as well, that the work of God is something that He is doing in your particular lives. There is an ultimate defeat of Satan that has happened, that is happening, is going to ultimately happen. But God is working now through His people in their lives, and in what they do. And you need to be mindful of this. But what you do in your life has, has significance. The things that you do in your life can, dear friends, have significance for generations going forward. And it is so crucial that we not think low of small things. We, we not think low of ordinary, regular things that God has placed in our lives these are the ways that you most often see 
God working, the ways in which the Lord most often is bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ is through parents bringing children to church, through parents speaking the gospel, preaching the gospel to their children, friends and family members talking one with another. These are things that are regular and gradual. The ways in which God works in people's lives, sure, sometimes they just read a book and everything suddenly just makes sense. But the way in which God most oftentimes works in the life of His people is the regular, ordinary means of grace, the reading of the Scriptures, the singing of praises to the Lord, the the proclamation of the gospel, the, the regular practice of the Lord's Supper. All of these things are things that the Lord is using for the sanctification of His people. And we must see these, that in each of these works... This is the Lord further reigning in the hearts of His people, the kingdom of God expanding and spreading, and it is the slow and gradual, many times, crushing of the head of the serpent, Christ taking rule in areas where Satan no longer has dominion. Christ has ascended to heaven, but He is still reigning in His church. He is still ruling in the hearts of His people. The Spirit has been given to His people that you may have life, that you may have guidance. Satan has lost, he is losing, and he will lose. This is something that we see oftentimes in in the Scriptures of of what the Lord has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See what Jesus tells them here, that they will not be hurt. He tells the 70 this, that they, they will not be hurt. But you know very well that that martyrs are going to come forward. Most of the apostles are going to be martyred. They are going to suffer under persecution. They cannot take anything from you that will not be returned to you many times over, dear Christian. That is the reality that is there. Satan has lost his dominion. He's lost his power over you because the power that he had over you was in the fact that you had broken the law of God, that you had sinned against a righteous and holy God. And God in his justice, God in his justice absolutely has to hold you accountable for what you do. But that has been broken at this point for Christ the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law in every respect. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience. The Lord Jesus Christ took upon Himself the fullness of the consequences of sin so that if your life is lost, if your possessions are lost, if your reputation is lost for the glory of God, if any of these things happen in this life, they will be repaid to you many times over in glory. There is nothing that the worldly person is taking with him at his death that you are not taking with you at your death, dear Christian. You could amass all the wealth in the world, and upon your death there will be people standing around trying to figure out how to distribute it to other people. No, Christ is powerful. Christ has broken these these, these bonds, Colossians 2 and 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them. And even in these little details of your life, the sanctification in your life, the, the, the Christians so many times can get frustrated over their struggle with sin, and you learn more and more of the Word of God. You learn more and more even of the commands of God and the ways in which it applies to your life. You learn the ways in which you break God's law, and it breaks your heart because you desire to walk in holiness. But just remember the grace of God that's been shown to you. You must look back to your Christian and not just see what it is that you do wrong now, for you aren't perfect now. You aren't glorified at this time. But you must look back, look back a couple years. Maybe you've been a Christian for a decade. Look back a decade and say, but where were you 10 years ago? And you say, oh, 
I'm a totally different person now. You can't even compare me to where I was 10 years ago to 20 years ago. And you see the grace and the work of God that is there, and you see the Lord working in your life, destroying the works of the devil, the consequences of sin, even in your sanctification. And when you see the ways in which you break God's law, you see the ways in which you live in a way that is inconsistent with how you were designed to live. You live in a way that is inconsistent with God's commands. It reminds you of your need of God, the need of the grace of Christ Jesus, your need of the Savior. That's why you must continue to trust in the gospel. The gospel is always, always, this is what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf, dear Christian. You must continue to believe that. You must continue to trust in that. For as you grow and you mature and you see your sin even more, it is but a reminder, oh, how I need the grace of Christ. Oh, how I need that upon me. Oh, how I need it even more. And more, it's funny how that is, that you begin to find ways in which you are sinning that you didn't even realize. You study the Word of God even more, and you begin to work through certain problems that you have in your life, and you work through those problems, and you work through those problems just to find out even more problems that you had. You already had those problems, you just didn't realize they were there. And that is sanctification, that is a glorious thing. That is a good thing. At no point in our Christian walk do we say, I've arrived, I'm there, I'm good. No, you arrive to another place and you merely see another way in which you needed Christ. And the reality is, if we could have done it ourselves, Christ did not need to dwell among us. Christ did not need to clothe Himself in flesh and tabernacle among us. 1 John 3 and verse 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's one of God's glorious works in your life, dear Christian. It's removing sin from your life and granting you repentance. It is like the Israelites. They were freed from a slavery under Pharaoh, freed out of Egypt, and they went out into the wilderness that the Lord could work upon them during that time and remove the Egypt from them. It was not long they had left and gone out into the wilderness to go and to worship the Lord that they began to make idols for themselves. No, dear friends, the Lord, is, the Lord loves you, the Lord cares for you, and He is working within your life, seeking to remove these sinful works, these sinful activities, because He cares for you. Because Christ has died for you, that you would walk in these ways. That's why we have Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. These good works that the Lord is doing in your life is the further growing, further growing of the kingdom of God within your heart. Satan has been defeated, is being defeated, and will ultimately be defeated. Romans, uh, Revelation 12, beginning in verse 9, it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved, they loved not their lives even unto death. That accuser that would bring before the Lord the ways in which the, the Christian is sinful. You know, they say, yes, I am, but I'm looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the ways that Satan seeks to, to, to point out the errors and the insufficiencies of the Christian merely to point to the glory of Christ. Christ is sufficient. Christ has accomplished all that is necessary. There is peace between man and God in Christ Jesus so many religions, dear friends. You must see this. You must see the ways in which Christianity is distinct from every religion in the world. 
Every religion in the world is distinct from Christianity, for every other religion in the world can pretty much be summed up with, you do these actions to make yourself right with God. You walk through these particular prayers. You do these particular activities. You, someone else does this on your behalf. A human, just a plain human does this, and then that's going to in some way give you peace with God. That's going to in some way forgive your sins. Christianity is distinct Christianity is opposite of this. Christianity says there's nothing good in you. You're helpless. You're hopeless. Even on your best day, your soul falls short of righteousness, that there's nothing that you could do in your own efforts. Even when you walk in your own efforts, even when you seek to go forward and you seek to do righteous actions, in your efforts of doing those righteous actions to cover your sin, you merely condemn yourself even more. You're like one who had a filthy garment and had filthy hands, and you began to clean your garment with those filthy hands, and you but spread the muck upon the garment even more, like filthy rags. And that's what one would bring before the Lord, whereby they can be saved, whereby they would appeal to the Lord and say, well, yeah, I understand that I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect. But what about this person over here that's done this sin that I haven't done? Not so in Christianity. Not so in Christianity. Christianity says, I have nothing in and of myself. I have no hope in myself. I have but one hope that I plead, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. It is but to see that Christ Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinned in any way. And Christ, being fully God and fully man, was placed upon the cross and died. The wrath of God fell upon Jesus that it may not fall upon you, dear friend, that you might be saved, that you might have life if you would but first see the ways in which you have broken God's law, that you would see that you have fallen short of the glory of God, that you're hopeless in and of yourself, that your hope is in the one that has been given, in the Messiah, in the perfect Lamb of God. The wrath of God has fallen upon him. And in that, in that great act, in that act upon the cross where Christ Jesus died, Satan may have thought that he had victory, but it was there he met his great demise. For it is finished, Jesus said at that time. It is finished. That prophecy that is given so early in the Scriptures in Genesis 3.15, that prophecy that said the child of the woman will crush the head of the serpent came forward at that time very specifically through the child of the woman, through Mary, the one that was prophesied, the one that would be from the line of, the, of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, that one that would be from Abraham's line, that one that would come forward and die as a propitiation for the sins of of his people. So Satan's fate is sealed. We see the ultimate sealing of the fate of Satan and the demons and all who follow after him. Revelation 20 and verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the direction that Satan is going to. He will be thrown to the lake of fire. All of the fallen angels that have fallen after him will likewise be thrown into the lake of fire in all of humanity that is in opposition to God. All of humanity that, let's be honest, is in an alliance against God. That is the, those are the categories that the Scriptures give You are in one of two categories, understand this. Paul makes this very clear in multiple places. We see this in Ephesians. We see this in Romans, that you are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. You are born into this world, dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not slightly affected. You're not just a little bit damaged. The Bible describes you as being dead in your trespasses and sins. But there's life there in Christ Jesus, and the work of God is being displayed as the 70 went forward, and they are joyful. They are saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. They they are seeing 
this picture of the work of God as they go out and minister, this prophecy that was given in the garden that the child of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. They're seeing this, the fulfilling of this prophecy happening as they're going out. And Jesus describes them as crushing serpents and scorpions. But the joy has got to stay in check. It's got to stay in the right perspective that that even in ministry, even in in working in these areas, you begin to see God working in these areas that your mindset, your focus must be on the one to whom you're pointing people to. Your focus there must be on the one that is the Messiah, the one that is saving. Garland makes this point about the passage. He says, this saying serves to check unbridled delight and power. The return workers use the present tense, the demons are subject to us, which is true, but their power derives only from their association with Jesus. The demons are submitting to Jesus' name and not theirs. Their power is not something that they can treat as a permanent possession to boast about. Their boast can only be that God has accepted them and the promises of salvation. And so Jesus cautions them here in their joy that he's not trying to say you can't have joy that people are being changed, that God is working here, but your joy must be grounded and connected in Christ in what God has done for you. That is your connection. Because whatever gifts you have can go away. Whatever possessions, positions you have can be removed Verse 20 in Luke 10, it says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is what matters most, dear friends. Where do you stand with God? Where do you stand with God? Because if you have that straight, it doesn't matter what else happens in your life. You could lose your life your position, your possessions. You could lose your network and your connections and all things that you have. But if you have peace with God, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And there is joy and there is glory there. But one who has not his name written in heaven, one who has not peace with God, one who has not seen his sin and his need to turn from it and cling to Christ is one that at his death will lose all that he has and fall under the wrath of God for all eternity. That is a promise. That is something that that Jesus is is talking about here within this this passage. We see this idea of being written in the book of life in Revelation 3 and verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Don't kid yourself. Don't tell yourself, I'll stand before God and I'll make my own case. I'll make my own argument. I'll explain to God, you didn't give me enough evidence here. I didn't have enough proof of this. Or I was raised this way. Or this happened to me. You you will say none of those things. You will not stand as your own advocate before the Lord. You need one who would advocate on your behalf. You need one whereby you can stand before the judgment seat of Christ, whereby you can stand before the throne of God and the judgment of God. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. The Bible says God's given a time for man to die and then the judgment, and you will stand before the Lord and he will judge you for everything you've ever done, every idle word, every sinful thought, Every sinful intention, every sinful desire, even the ones you didn't follow through in, He will judge you for all of those, and His wrath will fall upon you. But if you are in Christ, you have an advocate. You can come before the Lord hopeless in yourself, but trusting in Christ. And as one that had dirty garments going before a king, but the Son of the King will grant you His garments, whereby you can stand before the King in the garments of the Son of the King. And you will be accepted on Christ's righteousness, on His basis. It's the source of true joy. That's the source of true joy even in the work of God in this world, in the hearts and the minds of others, that our groundedness must be there in who Christ is and what He has done on our behalf. Praise God 
for the work that He does. Praise God for the souls that He is saving. Praise God for the lives that are being changed. There is joy in Christ's sovereign victory. But we also see joy in discerning grace. Joy in discerning grace. And this is a difficult passage, I would say, for many people. I would say this may be a difficult passage for some of you that are before me right now, but it is a passage that is in the Scriptures, and we practice a systematic exposition of the Scriptures, which means that when we get to a passage that's difficult, we still have to deal with it. If we get to a passage that we don't like, we still must preach that passage. Let's look at that, verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to His disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it, and hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. This is the only recorded instance that we have in the entirety of the Gospels of Jesus rejoicing. This is the only record that we have of Jesus rejoicing. If, if that fact doesn't cause you to stop and just contemplate that reality for a moment, I don't think that you're really paying attention. This is the one time where we have Jesus rejoicing, and He rejoices in this. He rejoices in saying, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And this, in understanding the, the original language here, the Greek here is informing us this is not just a, a normal rejoicing, but this is an exuberant rejoicing. This is his response to the 72 in, in their rejoicing over Satan, right? The 72 came forward, and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. And they were rejoicing there, but Jesus here is rejoicing that there are people that they went out to, and they knocked the dust off of their feet as they left that town because they would have nothing to do with Jesus. Like we saw that when he was going through Samaria, they wanted nothing to do with him as he was going through there. Why? Because he was going to Jerusalem. What he was doing didn't go along with their understanding of what a Messiah should be. A Messiah to the Samaritan is one who should be accepting their religious worship on Mount Gerizim and not worship in Jerusalem. But now the Scriptures say that he would be one who came from the tribe of Judah. He would be one who was coming from this southern kingdom so oftentimes we have this, this picture of God begging and, and pleading. This, this, the evangelicalism throughout the last few centuries has communicated this idea that God is just begging and pleading and doing all that He, he is just desiring to do. And he, He's trying the, the best that He can. He's doing His very, very best just to save as many people as He can. And it's such an idea does not rightly take into account who God is. It doesn't rightly take into account when we create these pictures. Uh, first off, you shouldn't be painting pictures of Jesus, but second to that, these ideas that are being communicated, that Jesus is just here, just knocking on that door, tapping on that door, just doing all that He can, almost, almost frustrated, or, or this Molinist God that we talked about starting out, this, this God that's just calculating as much as He can, how can I make a world where the most amount of people possible are going to be saved, and the least amount of difficulty and pain and suffering, and, and, and then here's what we have. This is the world that we have and these are the cards that he was, he was dealt. But the reality that we must understand, and it helps us, I believe, to give kind of a category for what is happening here with, the, with Jesus and how he's, he's, he's praising God, he's rejoicing here that there are those that the truth was hidden from. And every one of you need to understand this as well, because sometimes you can come into 
you know, a place like a church, and you can kind of sit there in judgment. You're like, well, let me see if I'll, you know, judging God, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to, you know, find all the errors of the person communicating, and I'm going to find all the errors that I can see within this particular religion. You need to understand this, that everyone glorifies God. Everyone glorifies God. Everyone will glorify God. And you may say, how can you say such a thing, Pastor? How, how can you say that everyone glorifies God? Some people become Christians. Some people don't. Some people live their lives as murderers. They live their lives as abusers, as dictators. They destroy generations of people. We, we see the, the, the sinful actions that people have done centuries earlier, and they're still affecting people in parts of the world today. How can I say that all people will glorify God And the reality is there's two ways, just as two broad general categories, and I would say that all the other ways of glorifying God are going to fall out from these two categories. But there's two ways that you can glorify God in these broad general categories, and that is, number one, you see your sin. You see the ways that you've broken God's law. You find no hope in yourself or through any religious actions of your own, and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is absolutely glorified through that. God's glory is displayed. God's justice and His justification is displayed in that. His kindness and love is displayed in that when you're trusting in the Lord and being saved from your sin, having peace with God, it brings God glory. All things that God does bring Him glory. But the other way that you can glorify God is by living your life in opposition to God. You can glorify God by walking in a contradiction to His law in self-righteousness. And when you die, the wrath of God falls upon you for all eternity. God will be glorified there as well. You will glorify God in one of two ways. That is a promise that, that is a, a reality. And Jesus is here rejoicing in the sovereignty of God, the election of the Father. We talked about this earlier. The reality is you are born dead in your trespasses and sins. You are born unable to do anything good. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be. But it does mean that you do not meet that perfect standard that is required whereby you would stand righteously before God. You don't meet that standard. Not the standard that you come up with, not the standard your grandfather told you, not the standard that your parents brought you up with. No, no, God's righteous standard, perfect obedience in word, thought, and deed. Obedience even from the heart. You don't meet that standard. And so you, you can't even, Paul says it in Romans 3, that no one even seeks after God. Read Romans 3 later. Look at what Paul says about all people, Jews and Gentiles. Nobody seeks God. Nobody is righteous. No, not one. That's our natural state. So we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And the only way that you come to Christ is that He opens up your eyes. That your mind has understanding. That you can see your sinfulness. And so Jesus here is rejoicing in the Father's election the grace of God that is being shown to people. There in verse 22, I thank you, Father, Lord, of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We see this idea communicated in many places in Scripture. The election of God, God calling a people. Remember, God called the Jews to himself. And why did he choose the Jews? Does he say, I am choosing the Jewish people to be my people because they are going to be, they are such righteous people. They weren't such righteous people. They were very sinful people. Remember, it took 40 years to get the Egypt out of them. It took many, many more years that they would, they would be even in the, the state that they were in when Christ came, and even that wasn't sufficient. Idolatry was pretty much removed, or outward idolatry was pretty much removed. Um, the worshiping of, of images and such. They had the idols within their heart, self-righteousness that was being dealt with when Jesus came. But they weren't chosen because of their greatness, their wealth, their strength. He chose them because they were small, that He would display His power through them, that when there was a victory on behalf of the Jews, when they were victorious in battle, 
you could but say it was the Lord. That cities ahead of them were terrified, were fearful of this band of slaves moving around the wilderness with no land or possessions, fearful because of the God that ruled over them. This God that ruled over them is one that called them not because of anything good in them. And this is a God that called you, dear Christian, not because of anything good in you. He wasn't looking down the corridors of time thinking of all the great things that you're going to do. No, it says in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. That beautiful picture of adoption here, being brought into the family of God. This is not a natural birth. This is one that is adopted, one who is brought in, one who is given the rights as a child, as a son, but only through adoption. We see this idea communicated in John 6, 44. Once again, Jesus comes right out and says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me, sends me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And there are those that the Son has chosen. Um, I will raise him up on the last day. And that's the idea that is, is communicated there, is that no one can come to Christ. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them. We, we have to see God's condescension. I know that's a big word, but we have to see the ways in which God has related to us in ways that He is not required to do that. God has related to us in ways as humans that He does not relate to the other creatures. He has displayed Himself to you in all that He has made. You're able to see His glory as it is displayed all around you. You know that God exists. You know that you will give an account to Him Romans 1 walks through that very, very clearly. And God condescended even there in creation in showing Himself to us. He didn't know us that. God condescended to us in giving us His Word. He wasn't required to give us His Word. This act of revelation isn't a necessity on His part. It's a condescension. It is a kindness on His part, not something that we are owed all right? And we also see Him condescending to us and the Lord Jesus Christ coming and clothing Himself in flesh and, and, and dwelling, dwelling among us. And that's the picture that we have there. We must see it from that perspective that the Lord wasn't required to display Himself to all people. And you need to see this as well. That natural man has a hard heart. Natural man is stubborn. Natural man looks at himself and desires to make himself right, desires to justify himself, desires to look at the requirements in God's law and find ways in which he can wiggle around. He tries to find ways in which he can, he can make himself right before God through his own actions. And such a sinful man is worthy of the wrath and the curse of God. That's, that, is, that is what is owed to such a person. God is not required to display Himself to us. And so we're asking the wrong question there. We're asking the wrong question there when we say, well, why is God not displaying his, Himself to these people? Why is He keeping his, his message from going to this area? These people here that aren't interested in His message, the question you should ask yourself is why was it given to me? Why am I able to so freely walk about with the Word of God when so many in history have not had such opportunities? We walk around, we have so many Bible translations in this language that we just bicker and fight with each other over which one that we should be using. We have multiple Bibles in our household. We have a pile of them in the back of the room here. We have a pile of them, let's be honest, in the sharing closet over there that we've moved over there just because they were kind of worn out and I didn't like how they looked. We have so much access to God's revelation and we don't even realize the ways in which so many in church history past would have loved to have such access where you had people hiding scraps here and there from Roman soldiers that were seeking to come and destroy the Scriptures, which, by the way, is why we have so many of the Scriptures that we do now because they were 
preserved providentially by the Lord, but He wasn't required to give this to us. And we can begin to ask ourselves these questions, and we can say, well, why would God do this? Why would Jesus praise God for this, this discerning grace? And I want to point you to Romans 9, because Paul deals with many of these things. And when you begin to ask the same questions that the Apostle Paul is rhetorically interacting with in a chapter of the Bible, you need to stop yourself and say, wait a second, maybe I'm on the wrong side of this argument. Maybe I'm not thinking this through as clearly as I should. But Romans 9, let's begin in verse 6, it says, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended of Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring." But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? Now consider that question that Paul says. Is there injustice in God's part? That is the first argument that is made against the passage like we have here in Luke. God is being unjust. No, God is not required to condescend to anyone. God is not required to share himself with anyone. It's not something that he is required to do. It is God's sovereign choice where He displays His glory and who He shares Himself with. And He is using here the story of Jacob and Esau to show God's election in this. That Jacob was chosen over Esau not because of anything good within them. Jacob was chosen because he was such a good person, such a righteous person. No, not at all. Not at all. Jacob was a conniving man. Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a deceiver. He was chosen because of God's free choice. This is not an injustice with God. He owed neither Jacob or Esau anything. They were both sinful men deserving of God's wrath. If God chooses to show grace to one and justice to another, you cannot bring a charge against him which is why Paul says, is there any injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I compassion, who I have compassion. And look at this in verse 16. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not about man. It's about God. And then he continues, for, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so he has mercy on whomever he, he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It is God's sovereign pleasure, it is God's sovereign choice to harden one person and soften the heart of the other, to open one person's eyes and not open the eyes of someone else. Jesus came and He gave people sight. He came and he, gave, he, he made people that were lame. They had the ability to walk, but He did not do that with every person in the entire world everywhere. God was not required to do that. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then that's the next question that people say. Well, if God is sovereign here, God is sovereign over who believes and who doesn't. God is sovereign over who is given life and who has understanding. Say, how does, how does he still find fault? Paul doesn't answer that question. Paul doesn't answer that question. That's the most common question that is asked, and Paul doesn't answer it. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to show the riches of his glory? 
um, for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign pleasure in this regard. You say, how can he still find fault? Because you're guilty, because you have intentionally broken his law. That is the reality for all of us. It's a reality for all of us, friends. You will glorify God no matter what you do in your life. You will ultimately glorify God, but it is so crucial for you as a person. It is so crucial for you and your eternity that you glorify Him by trusting in Christ Jesus. All roads don't lead to God. Don't believe that lie. All roads don't lead to heaven. Don't believe these religions like Baha'i that say, well, all of these religions lead to the same place. He says this to his disciples there in verse 22. He says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows them except the Son, the Father, the, except the Father, who the Son, except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He says this to them there in verse 23, blessed are you, the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and not see it and to hear what you hear and hear it. This was the electing pleasure of God to display these things even to these men as they were going out. And we must see that even, even in walking in obedience, we are but servants who have but done what we are required to do. There is no what the Roman Catholics would call super arrogation. No, doing more than is necessary. You could never, through your own actions, meet the righteous standard because you're born in sin. So there's no doing more that is necessary. No, all of us are unworthy servants in the end. Our hope must be in Christ Jesus. Where are you, dear friend? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Where are you? Have you seen the greatness of your sin and, and your hopelessness? Are you still trusting in your efforts? Are you still trusting in your own standard of righteousness? Be mindful of what Christ says here. Ask yourself the question, what side of this am I on? Have I trusted in Christ alone? Have I seen my need for Christ? Have I been changed? Are my eyes opened? Or am I standing in rebellion against God? Am I seeking to meet a righteous standard that I have created to justify myself before God? It is not possible, dear friend. See your hopelessness. See the hopelessness of man's religion and turn to Christ, for in Christ there is salvation for all of your sin.